Looking for the latest perspectives to help simplify changing market conditions? Go to Nationwide, one of America's largest financial services companies. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, FINRA member, Columbus, Ohio. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Let's get to Laurie Cavasina, the head of U.S. equity strategy at RBC Capital Markets. Laurie, a little bit of a trim to your price target. Let's call it a trim. 4,700 from 4,860. Just walk me through your thinking over the weekend into this week. Sure. You know, John, I think we've all had the question on our minds, are we headed into a recession or not? And I will tell you that our, our we have 11 different models that we look at, but a fundamental assumption behind all of our modeling is the idea that we're going to see a material slowdown in economic growth that skirt the recession. And so when we do that, we, you know, we've basically updated our GDP models. We've added in a new valuation test, which was really responsible for a lot of the downgrade to the, far, of the forecast. But in general, we think that the economic data um, is, you know, we're, we're taking the optimistic case here that the Fed will be able to pull this off. But we do think that bond yields essentially have taken a bite out of some of the forward return of the market. We talked about that actually in April. Um, that continues to be the case today. And, you know, Lisa mentioned peak bearishness coming on. That's something else we're modeling in. So we basically look at the recovery off of the low that we had on May 19th and factor in the typical recovery that we see in right. growth scares. Mm-hmm. And it's about a 25% type return. AAII, that net bearishness that we've seen there, also tends to give you a bit of a springboard. So while we are factoring in this economic ratcheting down, we do want to take account of the fact that sentiment probably has you know hit peak bearishness as well. Lori, I want to take an individual sell-side report. I know you don't want to talk about individual stocks, and I'm not going to ask you about Amazon, but Ron Josie over at Citigroup publishes on Amazon with a stunning view out one, two, three, four years. The EBITDA growth from pre-pandemic is $43 billion out to a present $71 billion out to a window in 24 months of $104 billion. I believe that's growth. You are pounding the table that growth does better is value fades. Discuss that. So look, I think we also need to just take that economic environment we think we're in and apply it to sector and style positioning. And typically we see that when you exit a hot economy to a cool economy, one that's above growth to below growth or above average to below average in terms of the trend itself, you typically see value seed leadership. Value does well in a hot economy and you tend to see growth outperform 
in that cooler economy. Now, defensives would do well in the recession, but we think that's you know a risk, but not our base case. And when we look at growth as well versus value, we find that basically the relative valuation multiples are all starting to look reasonable or slightly attractive again. And if you look at the long-term growth expectation between value and growth, it had been sliding. So growth was really coming down relative to value. That tends to drive the relative PE multiple, but we have actually started to see some stability in that relative long-term growth expectation. In other words, investors have not given up on the idea that growth is better than value on the growth front, and that should give some support to the PE multiples here. So, Lori, what's going to drive the S&P? What's the leadership going to be to get it to 4,700, which is your new target? So, look, we like technology, and I want to stress that we are being very particular and very picky on that broader TIMT trade. So we don't like the communication services sector. We're neutral on consumer discretionary. But we like that classic tech sector where the valuations have gone from being ridiculously overvalued um, to slightly attractive to neutral, depending on what day we update the model. Earnings revision trends are actually starting to improve for the technology sector again. And it's one of the biggest sources of net income in the S&P, as well as market cap. So we think that helps stabilize the market. And if we do have a peak in bond yields here, which is a call our rate strategy team is making, that should all help also help the tech sector stabilize in terms of performance. On the value side, Lisa, I would tell you to look at financials. We've got a much better valuation case than what we've got in energy or materials right now. Earnings revisions are positive, but they're not peak-like, which I think they may be starting to look like they are in energy. And we really think that as the market sort of transitions away from the recession fear narrative and towards the slower growth narrative, that can breathe a little bit of life into this financials trade again in terms of a relief. Laurie, wonderful to get your thoughts as you cut that price target just a little bit. Laurie Canvasina there of RBC. We are thrilled to bring you Bruce Kasman, Chief Economist and Head of Global Economic Research at J.P. Morgan, listening all weekend to Ario Speedwagon because Kasman and team have been riding the storm out. There's no hur- the hurricane. Come on, you guys are diplomatic in your Friday weekly prospects. You pushed against the CEO who's looking for a hurricane. If it's not a hurricane, Bruce, brief Mr. Diamond right now on what's ahead. Well, I think what we have here is a pretty powerful uh, tension between drags that are not going away and a very resilient uh, private sector with the health of both households and corporates being quite remarkable right now. Uh, I think what we're going to see is growth uh, continue to be on the softer side, but growth continue to show resilience. Uh, We don't see a near-term recession. Uh, We see a global economy which actually does okay in the second half of the year with the U.S. slowing and the rest of the world doing somewhat better. What does China do to the U.S.? You call it the audacity of hope. I agree. We have a jump condition in copper this morning, but link in all of your Asia research over to what's happening in the United States. Well, I think the the U.S. manufacturing sector mostly is going to see some softening as a result of what's been happening in China. I think in addition to that, there is every reason to think that higher interest rates, higher energy prices is going to hurt things like the auto sector. We can see that. Uh, And we've just been through a really good run for U.S. and global manufacturing on the back of inventory dynamics. So I think industry is going to slow. You know, our basic point is there's no real 
reason to be worried about a recession. There is some slowing in the in the picture. But the other thing is that part of the reason we're getting slowing is high inflation. And I think the combination of high inflation and tight labor markets is starting to change the inflation process, which over time is not good for the sustainability of this expansion. So I'm not I'm not trying to downplay the underlying dynamics here, which are worrisome, but not about near term recession risk. I think you'd have to get hit by much bigger shocks to really talk about recession anytime in the next 12 months or so. Bruce, to one of John's uh, pet peeves that he mentioned this morning, the good news is bad news that we experienced on Friday, that momentum in a labor market highlights how much the Fed has to do. Is that your takeaway from the recent data, that there is nothing to stop the Fed from being more aggressive than the market is currently pricing it? I think over time that's true. I think the Fed is committed to 250s. Uh, if we're right and the economy is slowing towards a 2% pace later this year, there's a good chance they slow the pace down. But, but ultimately, I don't think what you see in market pricing is going to be consistent with the get Fed getting control on inflation, uh, slowing the economy down to, to something that's going to be weak. And I think ultimately the Fed's going to have to do more. But I don't think the Fed is ready or signaling it's willing to do that much more, I think, in the near term. And I think that's important. The Fed does not want to create a recession right now. The Fed is tolerant of inflation above 2%. So this is going to take time before we get to the point where the Fed really has to hurt us. So, Bruce, when I was reading a lot of the notes over the weekend, there seems to be this distinction drawn between a slowdown and a recession. Is there really some sort of clear-cut distinction here? Or are we basically just parsing words around the same issue, which is how do you price in a loss of momentum? I think there's a huge difference between a slowdown and a recession. We haven't had a recession in the U.S. without the U.S. unemployment rate rising two percentage points or more. Recessions are nonlinear events where corporates are pulling back. So I think we should be careful when we use those terms to make sure we understand that that's what it means. There are a number of different ways yeah. the economy can slow. I think it is likely the U.S. economy is slow. I don't think it's likely right. that we're going to see that kind of break that we've seen that's been notable in recession dynamics. Bruce, one of the big distinctions of J.P. Morgan is how you parse it out among your team. I know you hang on every word that Daniel Silver writes. And this weekend he writes about high wage growth. This is a really important concept and that the new domestic labor economy is skewing again to high wage job growth. Discuss that. Well, as as the uh, pandemic got hit and uh, we saw dislocations in the economy, an important part of the wage gains we were seeing and the elevated wage gains were not tied to the tightness of the labor market. They were tied to the dislocations and they were unusually skewed towards lower uh, skill uh, uh, job sectors. And now we're seeing, I think, what's more consistent with the tight labor market, uh, wage pressures uh, building and wage pressures building in particular in sectors of the economy that are high wages. I think the problem the economy has, even as it slows, is that the labor market tightness, uh, the salience of inflation, uh, is starting to affect the wage and price setting process. And I think that's the issue around the sustainability of the expansion that ultimately is going to be a serious problem. How long can the consumer remain resilient if you don't get wage gains commensurate with inflation and if you see people eating down into their savings as we have? Well, first of all, we should realize we are getting wage gains commensurate with inflation. The the wage bill, wages and, and hours together have been growing at about a 9% pace over the last uh, six months or so. So we have been getting that. I think we are going to see slowing in, in wage income, partly right. because the economy is slowing. Uh, I do think the US, U.S. household sector has every ability to continue to absorb drags from higher inflation. The question is whether they're going to be willing to and whether corporates are going to continue to right. generate that kind of labor. Labor income. 
income. Bruce, you're going to hate me. We talk to people in the White House and we say, when you go into the Oval Office and sit on that gold couch, how does a president take in your economic data? <laughs> when you wander into Mr. Diamond's office and you have to do a briefing, how does he take in the Casman economic data? Well, I think he takes it in and he's got his own views. I, I remember quite distinctly in the past that, uh, you know, the leadership of the firm was much more clear cut about understanding dynamics and financial conditions and how they were going to impact on the on the on the macro economy. That's something which as economists we may not fully appreciate. I think that's one of the issues we have to face right now is financial conditions are tightening as we're seeing it. And we, we give our uh, advice, um, you know, as we see it, uh, we see the economy slowing. Uh, we right. don't see a, a financial storm uh, coming uh, right now. Uh, and we think the economy is going to avoid recession yeah. as we go through the rest of this J year. John, if we go into hurricane season, can we get Kasman in here to do oh, weather reports? <laughs> I think Kasman practiced that with PR before coming on, that's for sure. Bruce, okay. going to catch right up, buddy. In the storm as always, out. Bruce Kasman at JP Morgan. My favorite tweet this morning the hurricane's been downgraded to a light summer breeze over at JP Morgan. Seeking timely market and economic updates to help guide client conversations? Look to Nationwide. Nationwide makes simplicity a priority for financial professionals by offering easy access to timely perspectives on changing market conditions, so more time can be focused on helping clients keep their financial plans on track. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, FINRA member, Columbus, Ohio. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Elaine Becker joins us now. This could be a three-hour interview given the fixation in America on air travel as we come out of the pandemic. Deaths under 300 is a huge, huge uh, deal. Elaine, let me get out of the way. Spirit, 
Frontier and JetBlue. And to borrow a phrase from CFA Level 4, is this dinosaurs mating? Is this much ado about <laughs> next to nothing? Well, we'll see what happens. Um, it's certainly not a done deal in any case because they need regulatory approval and the regulatory hurdles in the current administration are pretty high. Um, so there's no guarantee either deal gets done. Um, obviously, Spirit thinks they have a better proposal and um, really are taking to task the Spirit Airlines board of directors and right. management team. No, I, uh, Helene, just to get this out of the way, because Lisa's got 47 other questions that really matter. How does Spirit Frontier or JetBlue Spirit, whatever the name's going to be, how do they compete with the juggernauts like United, Delta, and American Air? Yeah, I, you know, that's a good question, Tom. And I think that's why they need to merge. I think any airline currently not named American Delta or United is having issues attracting and retaining people. And one of the biggest issues is retaining pilots. Um, there were 10,000 pilots that retired in 20, or 2020 and 2021. And in order to fly the 2019 schedule, they need to hire that many. Plus, to do any growth that they were anticipating, they need to hire figure another 20, 20%. Um, so this year alone, the, the industry needs to hire something like 12,000 pilots. We just don't turn out that many, number one. And number two, the whole idea, I think, behind either merger is really about giving um, employees and especially pilots more crew bases, more opportunity to fly the schedule, more opportunity to make captain, which is where you maximize your income over the life of your career. Yeah. Um, and I think that's really what, what we're arguing about here. And I think that's why Jeff Blue is being so aggressive. Attracting, uh, attracting employees is basically the same as saying having to pay them more, not the same, but <laughs> it's definitely part and parcel of the same story. Helene, given the fact that airlines are having to pay their workers more, they're also facing much higher costs when it comes to fuel. How much pricing power do they continue to have as consumers get crimped in other areas as well? Yeah, that's a great question. And we're wondering that ourselves. Um, so, so here's how we're thinking about it. The summer is sold out. Everybody who was planning to go away in June, July, and August probably bought their tickets in April or May. And certainly um, air, airlines themselves have been sounding the alarm on higher ticket prices. Um, there are also flight cancellations. It's, it's really kind of a disastrous summer, I think. I think we're setting up for a, a really difficult summer from the perspective of operations. Um, but I think we're worried about September and what happens in the fall, because to your point, um, I heard you say that gasoline prices are $5 a gallon and um, we're certainly seeing it cost more and more to fill up cars, especially for those who drive. Um, and, and airlines have no choice, but as labor costs go up and as fuel costs go up and airport fees are going up, uh, they have huge inflationary pressures. They need to raise ticket prices. And at some point the consumer is gonna say, okay, we did our travel and we're just done. We cannot fly well again. But to that point, Helene, how much does business take over, given the fact that you are seeing more conferences and people are realizing that that FaceTime uh, is really important? Yes. Well, that's our, our I don't want to say hope is the strategy, right? <laughs> but that's what we are thinking about after Labor Day. We are thinking that, okay, leisure travel, which is up about 35 or 40 percent from 2019 levels, starts to flatten out <clears throat> until the holidays. 
And then um, business travel, which to your point is increasing with more conferences, definitely more in-person. There's been so much turnover at companies that you don't know who your clients are anymore. So yes, you have to get out and meet and greet. And so we're hoping that business travel definitely comes um, comes back. And then international is the other big one, right? Um, we think international is down about 50, 60% still, especially Asia Pacific, which we think will be another couple of years before it comes back because of the mm-hmm. uncertainty with COVID. But um, North Atlantic is going to be good this summer, even with right. the U.S. still requiring testing. Well, the testing, I want to go there. We, we experience this in real time. Francine LaCroix, the Gulfstream folks. So Lisa and I were flying, you know, the, the airlines Helene Becker talks about. Why, do we, why are we the only ones, Helene, with a test to get back into the country? When does that go away? No kidding. <laughs> I think it's ridiculous, right? Because you can fly to Toronto or Tijuana or Mexico. Well, Mexico City yeah, might not be Lisa's practical. going but- to Tijuana. Yeah, you can do that. And then you drive across the land border and you don't have to test. So how insane is that, that you have to that you cannot fly into the United States without um, having a pre-departure test? It's just ridiculous. And I've I've been wrong on this so far. I thought it would go away in March and it didn't. I thought it by May 1st for sure would go away. No, it's still with us. Um, So maybe I'm done predicting when it's going away and just kind of thinking at some point the U.S. has to examine what it is doing and remove that pre-departure testing. Elaine Becker, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it. With Cowan always here on Sprint Frontier JetBlue. I'm going to frame out the math here, and then John's going to pick it up. Vishy Tirupatur joins us now, Global Director of Fixed Income Research at Morgan Stanley. Vishy, if you take the vector and you take the x-axis, you end up at a terminal rate for the 10-year yield. Where is your guesstimate of the the 10-year yield terminal rate? It's hard to say terminal rate. I would say how looking ahead and second quarter of next year, we expect the 10-year rate to be at 3.15%. And we, we expect when the Fed is done, uh, we think they will be in the, you know, about in the, the 3 to 3.25% range. Uh, the target range is where they will stop hiking, which would put them above what we would consider to be or generally understood to be a neutral, which is a, a somewhat imprecise estimate of 2.5%. Vish, if I ask people 2022-23, which year with the high on a 10-year Treasury fall in, most people would conclude 22. They say that because they'd look ahead to 23 at a deceleration in growth. And I think most people would think yields would be much lower, maybe closer to two on a 10-year. What's with the Morgan Stanley view, Vishy? Why do you have this view that we can almost stabilise around 3% as the Fed ultimately attacks growth, tries to bring it lower? So... I think I have some sympathy with that news, with that view. I think the the key thing to keep in mind is that while recession risks have certainly gone up, our economist models uh, show that recession risks have gone up just from a few weeks ago, 15%, to now something like 35%. Uh, So while the recession risks have gone up, the U.S. recession is still not our base case. So that's first important thing to note is that uh, U.S. recession is not our base case. And... We are suggesting that between now and end of the year, we would be pretty much range bound in a in sort of in 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 two seventy five three ish 
kind of levels uh, and so 3 3.15 is not a tremendously far from this in the from this range so especially with we lay in the idea that we will uh, our base case remains um, not what that of the recession and that the fed keeps going um, to get to significant you know at least some points above uh, above the um, the neutral rate so, Vishy, some people would say that a higher long-term interest rate call is uh, get pairs well with this idea that the Fed isn't going to be overly aggressive, that they're going to allow inflation to remain well above that 2% target for way longer than a lot of people expect. Do you agree? So we think that the Fed, in, and until in, uh, including 2023, we, will, we don't expect that they will come back to a 2% level of core um, PC level. So we expect that the inflation will remain above that level through 2023. So what does that mean for credit, given the fact that we really saw a rates move for the first part of the year, and now we're looking at something that's looking, to use Tom's word, more nudgy in the credit space. We saw a sell-off of the credit spreads, then you saw a retracement, but now there's starting to be a little bit more concern. Where do you fall? So we think that it's time, you know, year to date to say maybe about a, a few weeks ago, it was mainly a, a duration driven negative total returns. We think a lot of that is now in price. And I, we would be careful at this point and move up in the in the quality spectrum. So, we, you know, within the high yield space, we'll move, move towards double Bs. Where within the um, uh, investment grade space, uh, investment grade over high yield, that would be our call. Basically, with the, the, the notion is that I want to emphasize this point that the credit does not have a fundamental problem um, other than vague, very, very tail part of the uh, of the credit, of the credit spectrum. So credit has a valuation problem that we think that that means that uh, you know compels us to move higher in the quality spectrum. Sounds like you're also a little bit worried about credit risk, though, Vishy, relatively right. speaking, to where you were at right. the start of the year. Correct. Correct. Absolutely. You know, in the starting of the year, we thought we would should take default risk over duration risk. That played out. I think at this point we have taken that preference of uh, default over duration off now, and we think we, this is the time to move higher in the in the quality spectrum. But ultimately, Vishy, you don't think we should be worried about a default cycle kicking up in a big way? Exactly. I don't think we should be worried. At least in the next one month, a spike in defaults that is simply not in our expectation. Vishy, thank you as always. Vishy Tripatur there of Morgan Stanley. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Hurd, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. 
their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast, In Trust, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.